Derek Sivers is a programmer, a writer, and a businessman. He's created several companies and products, including CD Baby, which became the largest seller of independent music online. Derek, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. So, um, as we were talking before the show, you know, you mentioned that people often have you on their podcast, and all they ever want to talk about is entrepreneurship and starting a business. Uh, and you know, you you were willing to come on the podcast to talk about software, and this was actually something that came to my mind when I was starting the podcast. Is I would listen to a lot of podcasts, even podcasts that marketed themselves themselves as software podcasts, and oftentimes they would be about starting businesses. So I guess I want to ask you, like, was there some point in time where, like, uh, these two things, like entrepreneurship and writing software, got conflated? Hmm. Well, for me, everybody has their own personal take on this. For me, I often felt like programming is what I was really doing and really loving, and it was also making a business. But say, for example, when somebody would say to me, like, hey, why don't you just hire somebody else to do the programming? And I'd say, well, that's like going to the songwriter in the band saying, why don't you just hire somebody else to make your songs for you? It's like, no, this, this is the whole point. <laughs> like, this Programming is what I really love doing. To me, the programming is like the most purely creative uh, side of things. This is where the real invention happens. I mean, especially for an online business, like this is the most creative part. Everything else is just kind of selling and marketing and communications and all that. But God, I would never give up the programming. Like, Is is it is it hard to communicate that to non-programmers? Yeah. I mean, sometimes even to other programmers. In fact, just last night, I was out to dinner with a friend and a friend of hers walked up or like walked by and she said, hey, Rose, how's it going? Hey, Rose. And so um, they're just making chit chat for a minute. And then Rose asked me, um, what do you do? And I said that I'm a, I'm a programmer. And uh, she said, oh, what are you programming? And I said, I'm working on diving into some Postgres database stuff. And she went, eesh. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, she said she does Ruby on Rails. And um, what was it? How did this come up? It, it came up because she was talking about yoga. And I said, actually, I think my life is very tranquil. I sit there all day long just programming. And it's it's really beautiful and tranquil. And she said, like, that sounds really stressful. And it's funny that even though she's also a programmer, to her, like, programming is something that is stressful, it's work, it's difficult. Whereas to me, like, programming is like the ultimate, like, peaceful meditation. Did, you know? she, so, did she mention what stressed her out about programming? No. In fact, I didn't even really notice the difference until after she walked away, like, five minutes later. Then my friend that I was having dinner with said, like, isn't it funny that to her... Like programming is something stressful. She was actually the one that pointed it out after the fact. So uh, no, it was just a short conversation, but it just, it did show me that there are some programmers that do think of programming as just work, just drudgery, just necessity, something you do for money. Okay. So I can think of a certain dichotomy of two types of work that I've done. And one type of work is like working for the man and do having a deliverable and like having a date that you have to finish it by and that is stressful or like okay we're doing it in computer science you know academia but like there's this separate thing and this this is maybe what you're referring to this tranquility because i think a lot of people don't actually experience this 
when you're working on your own project and like going yeah. at your own pace and like exploring whatever the heck you want to, that's that's when you get that tranquility. True. And I, I last time I had a job was 1992. I quit my last job in 1992, and I've just ever since then I've only been self-employed, just doing my own things. And in fact, now that I sold my company a few years ago, um, sorry, this is like weird to say, but. I have more money than I'm going to be able to spend in my lifetime. So I, I, I have to constantly remind myself this because I got to make sure that I'm not doing anything for the money anymore. Everything, everything I do now has to be for intrinsic reasons, mm -hmm. uh, just because it's interesting to me. So yeah, to me, programming is like, it, it is the answer to that question. Like if you had all the money in the world, what would you spend your time doing to me, programming? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when you were working for somebody else, was that a programming job? No, uh, it was just a lowly, I was 22 years old. I was like working in the tape room at, uh, Warner Brothers Music in New York City. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. You, you really don't have any association of programming with the, the corporate stress that, uh, that sometimes is imposed on, on other programmers. Um, right. do you, do you think that as programmers, um, we have an obligation to create new things, like like because so so myself, I I know a lot of people who are young programmers, and I think this is actually like an epidemic. I know all these young programmers who like go home from work and they're just like watch Netflix or play video games, and it's like appalling to me. And I don't know if that's like overly judgmental, but I'm like, <laughs> why do you not have this insistent internal need? to create something new you know we've got this new art form that's been around you know programming's been around what 30 years and like you have these rare people who have learned these skills and they're just like squandering their time ah okay so this is an interesting comparison um between programming and creativity that a lot of people don't think of programming as creative i think that's like the biggest misconception that I think a lot of outsiders have that like they're not programmers they think of programming is kind of like drudge work it's almost like working in a factory but with your fingertips or something but to me it's just it's pure creativity and therefore there's some amazing books about the creative struggle that i think a lot of programmers would appreciate that um the one to start with is called the war of art by stephen pressfield and he's a novelist he wrote the um the book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which then got turned into a Will Smith movie. And so he's written a few novels that were quite successful. But my favorite thing about him is that he writes about the creative struggle. He's got, so he's got a series of three little books. The first one is The War of Art. The second one was uh, called Do the Work. And the third one was called Turning Pro. And so this is all by Stephen Pressfield. I highly recommend all three. Each one is just a little 90-minute read. Um, but what he does is he, he personifies the creative struggle by calling it the resistance with a capital R, almost like Satan. You know, it's like, it's like the resistance is what will make you just decide that you suddenly need to go watch some TV or play video games instead of doing this thing you know you should be doing. And the resistance is the thing that when you're 90% done with a project, uh, it will tell you like, hmm, maybe I'll just go explore this other avenue instead because uh, it's scary putting your ass on the line and actually launching something and calling it complete and releasing it to the world. So the resistance is the thing that uh, makes us continue to dabble instead of ever launching anything. I think a lot of programmers would appreciate 
these books because I think it addresses that kind of stuff you're talking about where it's like, yeah, you've got these amazing skills to like go invent worlds and turn nothing into everything and, and create realities with your fingertips. And yet people who have those skills will just eat their chips and watch TV. Yeah, I don't get it either. Do you think, do you think they typically even, I mean, you mentioned like non-programmers not identifying programming as this creative activity, but uh, are, do you think that afflicts even programmers? How do you mean? Like, do you think that there's an affliction of programmers where they don't realize what they're doing is creative? Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, right, right. I see what you mean. Right. Because I said, yeah, non-programmers think of it as factory work. Absolutely. I, well, I find that in in India, for example. Um, so my wife is from India, so I have family in India. In fact, I have an Indian passport now since I was married to somebody who was born there. I, I am now an overseas citizen of India. So I've spent some time there, and it's amazing that the programming culture in India, it's kind of like, no, programming is, that's just some drudge work you do for money. Like, you don't do it for fun. Um, this isn't something creative. This isn't something enjoyable. It's just you go get a job at a big factory house and you program C++ or Java and that's just what you do. It's not seen as anything creative at all because I guess in that world it isn't. It's just here, make these tests pass, go find the bugs in this code. I don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating and kind of tragic. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Pressfield and the resistance and um, another author who uh, you and I both appreciate is Seth Godin. He, he actually writes a lot about Pressfield. He quotes yeah. Pressfield and the Resistance, and Seth Godin's version of the Resistance is the lizard brain, which is like this, you know, kind of basal, uh, you know, primordial <laughs> instinct that is preventing you from doing your best work because, oftentimes, because of shame. I mean, he, you know, yeah. he, he, he articulates it as you know all the things that make you at a low at a really low level like afraid uh in an evolutionary sense like maybe you're gonna end up starving or you're gonna end up as a social outcast or you're never gonna find somebody who loves you these are all these things that are connected to what he calls the lizard brain what pressfield calls the resistance um and i but i think that there's actually a, a large volume of other things that uh seth godin talks about that are applicable to programmers um and I'm I'm pretty sure you've read a lot of Seth Godin stuff, so I'm curious, like what what things you think uh, would be good takeaways for programmers. Um, honestly, I think it's the same uh, stuff we just said with the Stephen Pressfield books. Um, to me, I, I I love Seth. In fact, he's the one that published my book. Um, I never intended to write a book, but then he asked me to. And when Seth Godin asks you to do something, you say yes. <laughs> so um, I think. Yet 10 years ago, he made a name for himself as an author writing on the subject of marketing. And I think over the last 10 years, he's kind of morphed into talking more about this, the bigger struggle of putting your ass on the line and doing something daring and launching things and having the, the bravery to you know, release something and sign your name to it. And so I think, honestly, he's been influenced by the Stephen Pressfield books a lot. So... um yeah, I think uh, start with the, for anybody listening who hasn't read any of these, I'd say start with those, all three of the Stephen Pressfield books, um, uh, War of Art, Do the Work, and Turning Pro, and then, yeah, then then check out, uh, then work backwards through Seth Godin's books, uh, because the most recent ones are about the uh, the general 
uh, creative struggle, um, feeling that you have something unique to offer to the world and this knowing what you should be, knowing what you can be doing and having the bravery to do that instead of staying meek and laying low. Uh, his more recent books are about that. But as you work backwards, his older books are more about marketing. So you've written some about the struggles of maintaining creative productivity, and we're kind of having a conversation around that. Um, how do you stay productive as a programmer as and as an artist? Um, oh. you know, particularly because you, know, you have this... Uh, you, you've got, you've made your money. You don't have the the fiscal imperative. Um, where do you derive the creative energy, the juices from? I love that you asked this. That the phrase that often comes to mind. I don't know where I heard it first, but I think of it all the time. It, it says this. It's a um, creativity, uh, or whether you want to call it the muse, a creativity never um, comes to you. She'll only meet you halfway. And this idea that's like, God, we all know that feeling where you're, you're sitting there with some vague idea or something that you want to do. Like I want to, you know, and you just, it's, it's like, it's almost too much to wrap your head around. It's too big. And you're just like, I don't want to, maybe I'll just, you know, check my email again or watch TV or something. And, and I, and in those moments, I think I'm, I'm just not inspired right now. I don't want to. And I think, okay, I know what'll happen if I just fucking like sit down and start typing, just type, create table, create the first database table or whatever it is, like just begin. And what happens is like, if you just start and then you're maybe half an hour into it, then the inspiration starts to show up and she you know, meets you halfway. I really like that idea, and it's it's come true every time. So this even happened, um, was it yesterday, two nights ago, where I was trying to wrap my head around some big new thing I was doing, and I was just feeling so stuck that I found I was just distracting myself in every way possible. And finally, you know, like 7 p.m., I was like, ah, grumble, grumble, grumble. All right, let me just, you know, let me just type this out. Next thing I knew, it was like 1 a.m., and I was just on such a roll. I was like, whew. It was just such a great feeling. It's like I've made myself go to bed at 1 a.m. because I, I knew that I have this tendency to wake up at 6 or 7 no matter what time I go to sleep. So I made myself go to sleep, but I was on such a good roll. And it was funny that it, I was having to remember. that It's like, wow, just uh, yeah, just nine hours ago I was feeling like I couldn't do this, and now I can't stop. You know, that kind of surprises me because I thought you were going to say, and then I got up from the computer and I went for a run, or I got up from the computer and I, like, drank a cup of water and read, you know, the the design of small things or, or whatever that book is called. And, uh, but I was surprised you just kind of, you sat there and focused on it. That's, that's, yeah. that's different. Just begin. And, and I think anything else you do, if you think like, oh, maybe I just, maybe I need to meditate or maybe I need to go on a run or maybe I need to clear my head. Maybe I just need to call a friend. It's like, no, just shut up and begin. It's just start fucking working. Like begin, start, like everything else is just distraction. Interesting. Well, so speaking of distractions, I think there is, uh, there's two schools of thought. Like one school of thought is like you can be productive uh, while working on a bunch of different tasks or working on a bunch of different products, uh, projects. And then there's this other school of thought that you should serialize your things and focus completely on one small thing at a time. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that or like how do you choose one project and commit to it or do you just 
thrash around and do a bunch of things at once and then just see what comes out of the soup or I definitely do one thing at a time uh I've tried to do this more habit-based thing my, my friend Tynan wrote a great book called Superhuman by Habit which is an amazing book on the subject of living of making habits that run your life like giving yourself the habit of exercise or the habit of eating healthy or the habit of practicing a language for an hour a day or whatever it may be. Um, and I, I get the benefit of that, but I just find that I just tend to get so into one thing at a time that I'll just, you know, I'll be working, I'll discover some new way of letting my PostgreSQL database handle all of the business logic instead of keeping it wrapped up in Ruby around it. And I'll like, suddenly I'll just get really into that idea and I'll want to do nothing else for months. I just had this time like last December through April or May, I think where that one thing I just said, like moving more of my uh, business logic into the Postgres database itself and learning the PLPGSQL language that's you know, built into the database. I got so into that idea that, uh, Jeff, it was just like all I did from 7 a.m. to 1 a.m. seven days a week for like five months straight. I, I would just bounce out of bed sometimes at like 4.30 in the morning. I'd like wake up and just go right back to the terminal where I had left off the night before and was just so into that one thing. And then I'll hit a point where I, I finished that and I'll say, oh, okay, well, I think I'm done with that for a while. Okay, so like as a case study in this creative interest like, how did that interest, specifically in, in Postgres, evolve? How did you get obsessively, um, you know, wrapped up in, in Postgres? And what did that lead to? Um, okay, I've always liked SQL. Or SQL is just, I learned it way early on. Like, before I even really learned programming, uh, I think, like, back in 1997, 98, um, I was just starting to do my very first dynamic website. Everything was just static HTML, but then I built this little online store called CD Baby that was starting to take off. And I was still cutting and pasting everything by hand in a little desktop application called FileMaker Pro. And uh, finally somebody told me like, you know, there are databases that will sit on your server and do that stuff automatically. And I went, oh my God, really? Because I was spending hours a day like cutting and pasting and cutting and pasting and pasting things off of emails into forms. And, and when somebody told me that there were server-side databases, I went, oh, my God. And so I had to learn this SQL language to manage them. I mean, there were no object relational managers then, right? It was just you have to, in order to run your database, you have to learn this language. And because my database was just the, the core to everything I was doing, I really I learned SQL well enough, not the deep stuff and the the advanced SQL, but you know, the basic levels, I learned it well enough that it just became the way that I think about things. Like even when I just be sitting on an airplane and suddenly have a new business idea, just one of the first things I do is just open up a text file and I'd start typing, you know, create table gigs, <laughs> create table, calendar entries, create table, attendees at gigs. And I would just, that became the way that I would think about, uh, structuring data. Everything else was secondary, the language around it, the UI, the everything else, the core of everything was just the data, the database. So SQL just was the way I think. So when Rails got popular in 2004, I already loved the Ruby language. I'd been using Ruby for a couple of years before Rails came out, um, which was kind of cute because actually 
somebody in my Ruby community told me, like, uh, I, I mentioned to somebody, like, I really love Ruby. I just wish there was a way to use it on the web. And they said, there's this guy in Denmark that's working on a web framework. And I emailed him. I was like, hi, David. My friend told me you're working on a web framework that uses Ruby. Anything you could share with me? And he said, well, not yet, later. And that that was David that wrote Rails. Um, so I was an early adopter of Rails. I loved it right away. But I hated the way that it used Active Record to take away all this SQL and it replaced it with this silly Ruby code that well, what, I don't, I just want to use the SQL. And so that was always a conflict. In fact, you can see there was a popular uh, notorious article I wrote in 2007 uh, called something, I think it was seven reasons I switched back to PHP after two years on rails. And it was just something that I posted on a little O'Reilly blog I had at the time that nobody read, uh, and I posted it, it was literally on my birthday that night, like I got an email from somebody saying, hey, I heard that you switched back to PHP from Rails, uh, could, you t could you tell me why? And it was like the fifth person that had asked me in two months, so I just decided like, you know, instead of just continuing to answer this question by email, I'm just going to write a blog post about it. So I, I posted this blog, went to sleep, and in the morning I woke up and it was like front page of Slashdot and Reddit and all these sites and all these, you know, hundreds of commenters were calling me the biggest idiot to walk the earth and people like you are the problem. You're obviously a complete moron. You have no idea what you're talking about. And, uh, yeah, people got really upset that I would uh, threaten their, their years of learning Rails as if it was not the most precious thing they had ever done. Um, anyway, but one of the things I said even back then in 2007 was uh, I didn't like the fact that Rails was hiding the SQL from me. I just, I really like just typing the SQL commands. So finally, I'm just giving a little context. After all this, um, what finally did it for me was uh, Rich Hickey, the inventor of Clojure, uh, did a keynote speech at the RailsConf 2014 or something. I think if you uh, search it on YouTube, it's called Simple Made Easy um, or something like that. Simple Easy. Thank you. Rich Hickey, Simple Made Easy, something like that. He's actually done the talk twice, once at a closure conference, once at the Rails conference. And I think the one at the Rails conference is actually a little better. It's a little more, he has edited it a little more tightly. And especially if you have any Ruby experience, um, it'll hit home a little more for you. Point is, um, he defines simplicity versus complexity as um, something that is objective, not subjective. He went and found the original etymology, the origin of the word simple means um, a single thing, like an unconnected thing. It is a single thing. Whereas complicated comes from complex, um, which means to be intertwined with other things, where things are intertwined together, like braided. Um, in fact, I think it comes from the word complect, uh, P-L-E-C-T, complect, uh, which means to braid things together. So he said, this is something that we can look at our software objectively, saying, is this simple, meaning that is it um, not reliant on other things, or is it complected, where it's tied together with other things? And he said, notice that this is nothing to do with hard or easy that things that are simple can be very hard, that it might, you might have to spend a lot of extra work to learn a new language that is not familiar to you in order to make your system very simple. 
He said, or, and this is what I love for anybody that's done anything with uh, Rails or even uh, Node packaging systems do this. <laughs> he, he used the example of a gem install hairball, <laughs> where he said, you can type one very easy thing. Uh, it is very easy to install a big, giant, complicated mess of code into your application that now everything in your application is completely bound to this extremely complicated thing, but boy, that was easy for you. He said, so I really want to separate this idea of easy from simple and complicated. Let's forget about whether something is easy or hard. You know, do a little bit of extra work necessary. So, so how, do, how do ORMs fit into this? How did you feel like Active Record <laughs> was complexing things? <laughs> um, in his, he gave this, you'll see there's a series of slides in this talk uh, where he describes what is uh, on the left side. He says, these are simple things. And on the right side, he says, these are complicated things. And so like on the left, he would write like um, maps, AKA hashes. Those are simple. Uh, the associative data structure that we all know with keys and values. He said on the right, uh, we have objects and classes and that. And he said, that is an unnecessary complication. He said, I think a lot of people use objects and classes when they could just be using the simple map or hash. Um, and then he, he kind of kept doing this for lots of different uh, data structures and things we use in programming, analyzing them as being either simple or complicated. And then lastly, at the very last um, one he used, it said uh, uh, object relational ORM. And then he, then he just wrote OMG. Like he said, this is one of the most like ORMs are one of the most complicated, complex, ridiculously over-engineered things you could ever use. It, it wraps all this ridiculous amount of layering around something that is basically just turning it into simple SQL strings and sending it to the database. And I totally, of course, that just hit home for me. Sorry, I'm giving a very long answer to your question, but I guess like for years and years and years, what I'm getting at is I've felt this disconnect between like, I just want to use SQL. I just, I speak that language. It's a very simple language. So after seeing this Rich Hickey talk, to me, that was like the final straw. I was like, I saw SQL as something that was not necessarily easy, but it sure is simple because if I'm uncomplecting my my business logic, my data logic, um, that would mean that right now, like everything was kind of written twice. Like I had a database, but I was treating it as dumb storage. And then I was writing a whole bunch of Ruby code around it that contained all of the business logic. But then what if I decide to switch from Ruby to JavaScript or from JavaScript to um, Elixir or something? I'm going to have to rewrite all of that language. And I said that by definition is complected because now I am I am tying together my database and my surrounding code in this way that it could be simple and what is the simple way the simple way is to just have that data logic in your database itself so now that that is by definition simple it is one thing it is just the database knows that you know you can't mark a project as closed if it hasn't been opened yet you know that should Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, not to say that one is right or wrong. Um, in fact, if you look at the comments, so all of this, by the way, um, anybody, if you're interested in this stuff I'm talking about, I 
wrote a good in-depth blog post about it at uh, sivers.org slash pg. And that'll be in the show notes, too. Cool. So if you look at the comments below that, of course, it's like hundreds of people telling me I'm an absolute idiot. I'm a raging idiot. And, you know, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I find that a lot of people that are saying that are people that were burned in the past by Oracle or um, MS, SQL or something like that. They say, yeah, see, we, we dealt with this in the 90s and there was vendor lock-in and database something, something. So never again. But I think that Postgres, I mean, it's, it's open source. It's, um, it's amazing. It can do so much more than people tend to do with it. A lot of people just treat it as dumb storage, but it has a, a great functional, um, sorry, functional meaning working, um, language built into it, the PLPGSQL language, um, built into it that could handle so much of this logic that we're, we're writing all this code around the database to do. It could just be built right into the database itself. And I just love the fact that if you put it in the database itself, then you're, it's uncomplected. It's un. Uh, so so if, if I'm understanding this right, the way that you architect Rails applications is you get an idea for the application, the end-to-end user experience, and then you write the database queries first, and then you just write very dumb, simple front-end logic that support those complex database queries. Is that correct? Well, okay, so to be fair, I don't, I don't use Rails anymore. Oh, so, okay. So I think... Um, then whatever, okay, how does that map to whatever front, like whatever framework you're actually using? What, do you, what framework do you use these days? Um, right now I'm using Sinatra, but actually I'm, I'm thinking of switching to a combination of Elixir and Elm. Uh, Elixir for the, the API backend and, and Elm for the front end. But this is what I love is that when, when you're keeping most of your uh, logic in the database itself, then the front end can... Because it's uncomplected, okay, it's no so longer. This is, this is like a together. question of modularity. It's not a question yeah. of like simplifying the front end logic. Well, I guess the, those two no, are tied together. Oh God, no! The, the front end logic becomes extremely simple because then almost everything that comes in the front end, you just pass it to the database. No, like no more logic around it needed. You just, uh, no matter what language the front end did, whether you're using Express with JavaScript or. Uh, Erlang Cowboy framework or a Warp and Haskell or whatever you may decide to use on your front end, you just toss the incoming parameters to the database and it knows what to do. And you just get JSON back and display it to the user and that's it. You're free to switch languages pretty freely because all the important stuff is in the database itself. Okay, but um, another question around modularity. I mean, uh, well, or maybe this is more a question of your database identity. Since you kind of grew up in the SQL world, uh, how do you feel about non-relational databases? I played with them a bit, but by the time I played with them, it I had already had 10 years with my Postgres database. I, I, I forgot to give this crucial context, is that since 1997, I've switched languages a few times. I started out in PHP, rewrote everything in Rails, switched back to PHP, now started doing everything in JavaScript, now kind of doing a Ruby Sinatra thing. Um, thinking of switching to Elixir and Elm. and um, But meanwhile, I've had the exact same Postgres database since 1997. I mean, you know, the person ID number two in my database is the person that got inserted there back in 1997, my very first customer. Um, person ID number one is me. <laughs> and so I've, I have this basically a legacy database that I'm working with that I'd, I'm not going to dump and give up and switch to Mongo or something um, because my existing database works. But then 
as time goes on, you keep seeing all of these benchmarks that show that actually uh, Mongo is actually no faster. In fact, Postgres has this um, HStore type thing built in. So if you want a non-relational data store, Postgres has that built in. And in fact, it's faster than MongoDB and all this stuff that just made me feel like I'm ready to double down on this technology, meaning Postgres, um, so that I can be... Uh, not so connected to the other technologies. Sure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of the, um, and I mean, I, maybe I'll get slayed in the comments or something for this, but I think that a lot of the motivation for using Mongo or some other JSON database is the fact that you just get to speak JSON to the database. And, right. And that's, yeah. and it's like, it's, you know, the, the motivation for JavaScript, JSON everywhere, you know, uh, unilingual, uh, I don't know, but but if you grew up with with uh, with Postgres, then you know there's there's that's not a that's a switching cost to you. That's not a that's not an advantage. Right, right, right. Or maybe if I was really just starting out brand new today in 2015 and having to look at the whole field of things and where to start out, that, yeah, I might I might go that way. Um, so is there a is there a project that you're working on right now, or are you are you kind of just uh, fiddling around and like writing new kinds of queries and stuff. Like, what kinds of stuff are you working on? <laughs> uh, both. I mean, I'm working towards a a web app idea I have called Muckwork, but I also I've written this whole kind of customer. Uh, I don't know this whole email inbox system that I wrote myself on the back end to manage all of my contacts. And if I mean everything I do is open. Why would open you do that? <laughs> uh, just. Because I want to, you know, I find it interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, this is. This well, is what the are whole... the shortcomings of the systems that you, you know, would have access to otherwise? Um, oh boy. Well, I don't like the cloud. I don't like the idea of keeping all of my crucial contacts and and absolutely precious information, like keeping that on somebody else's stuff um, in some mystery computer I don't have access to uh, in offline. Um, so I really like having everything in my own, uh, database. So like every email, you know, when you and I are emailing about doing this interview, that was all, uh, in my own email system that I wrote in my Postgres database. So when Jeff Meyerson emails me, it comes in as person number four, three, six, two, five, and the email number eight, three, nine, one, two, eight, whatever gets inserted into the database and saved there. So I have a permanent history of all of our communications and your URLs and all that stuff. And to me, this is like, it's, it's very I'm very long-term focused, right? Like I'm 46 now. And like I said, I've been using the same Postgres database since 1997. I imagine I'll, I'll probably keep using this database for the next 20 years. And this is this is everybody I know and everybody I've ever communicated with. I have a permanent archive here. And it's not sitting in Gmail's servers, you know, where if whatever they, they thought I was logging in from a, a bad IP address and they would shut me out of my account or something, you know, like this is, I find it important to keep my data on my servers in my database and under my control. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's one thing. And then, uh, I, th I think that's, that's a, that's a reasonable, that is a reasonable fear. Yeah. Well, it, it happens to people. I mean, shit, I mean, I know, yeah. just the story of a friend of mine told me a couple of days ago, he has a, a seven year old kid. And for the last seven years, he's been taking pictures of his kid, um, and putting them all up onto, I think Google Plus, or maybe it was just Google Images or something like that. Like one of those Google products for sharing it. Maybe it was Picasa or something like that. Point is, he also had a Google Apps account. 
Um, and he decided to kind of merge everything together. So he's using his own domain with Google Apps, and he decided to merge together his old Gmail account that he's had for seven years with his Google Apps account. And he said, okay, do you want to merge these together? Okay, da-da-da-da-da, done, it is merged. And all of a sudden, Jeff, like, all of his photos are gone. No he's way. Like, he's like, where are my photos? And I said, oh, well, you merged your two accounts, so um, they're not, they're gone. Just and disappeared to the ether? Gone. And those were the only, he's emailed support a few times, and they even escalated it, and they, they said, sorry, um, no, after you merged your accounts. It, wow. There, it did ask you at one point, it did ask you if you were ready to, you know, you understand the implications of merging accounts, and you clicked yes, so yeah, sorry, those photos are gone. And that was it. He just, he trusted the cloud and assumed that, of course, it's Google. They'll keep his photos there, but no, they're all gone. You know, I, I, I have gotten this, so like, you know, I feel like for a very long time, Google was like, bulletproof like they had all the edge cases worked out <laughs> right you know you could never lose any data but i feel like there's an increasing sense that there's I, I don't know if they're like losing talent or if they're like have been doing too many things or something but like there are little places in the seams where you're like the seams are splitting and the quality is degrading just a little bit and you worry it's like is google yeah i mean i mean people talk about google going the way of microsoft or whatever but like you know, people don't generally talk about the consequences of that. And I think one of the consequences are like, well, what happened to Windows over time? Became kind of not the best anymore. Like, what if that happens to Gmail or Google Drive right. or these things yes. that are like, holy crap. Like, uh, you know, if, if I lost the ability to consistently use Gmail, like, and the SLA is like three days to get back my account if they screw something up. And like, that's like three days offline, can't do anything. It's like, th- these are some like single points of, failure for our for yeah. our lives yeah i i love when i forget who this was somebody at some conference i was at recently they called they called cloud computing they called it they said let's just call it what is it? let's call it clown computing <laughs> i'm gonna put my data in the clown i'm gonna give all of my uh severe business logic and this thing that are crucial to my company let's gonna let's put it all in the clown let's give it to the clown and he said let's call it what it is because we don't know where it is it's not it's not trustable i said why do you trust the clown and um yeah there's there's something to that right like i don't want to sound like a complete paranoid mofo but these these edge cases do happen just occasionally enough that to me it's just it's a core philosophy it's like i don't i don't trust anybody with anything like um I guess we have to kind of trust the banks with our money a little bit. Okay, okay. Well, what, what if you were what if you were running a business like running a big business these days, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and like you know the standard operating procedure, procedure is to put your stuff in the cloud if for no other reason than like security. And I think the idea that these companies are a, considerably better at security at keeping up with security, patching stuff quickly than an individual can be like maintaining their own servers. I mean, do you do you disagree with that? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I'm I don't since I don't work at a company and I never have, I just don't think about it. Like I I don't I'm not being prescriptional. I'm not saying that what I'm doing is what others should do. I'm just saying for me, I mean, I'm I'm a Linux geek. I built my own servers. I, you know, I don't even run Linux. I run OpenBSD on my servers, and I install it myself. And I don't even use a. Uh, I'm not even using a uh, whatever DigitalOcean Linode type virtual slice. I actually I have a dedicated one U server sitting in a data center, and that's mine. And I I installed OpenBSD on it, and that's my fucking server, and nobody else has access to it. You know, like because this is me. Like, um, 
whatever. And so I, whatever, I also have servers in, um, spread, I have a little, whatever, uh, file servers spread around the world in three different places. And every night before bed, I back up everything to three different countries and because I can, because it's, that took me no effort. It was just kind of fun. So I'm not, obviously this is not what everybody on earth should be doing, but this works for me. That's fascinating. Um, okay. Well, so, so I didn't want to like touch on, I didn't want to touch on CD baby like too much. Cause like you've gone over that so much in other interviews and I've listened to them and people know the story, the business side story of CD baby. But I am curious a bit if there are any like interesting engineering stories you can tell from your time working at CD baby. I mean, you, you, you know, you started this business, you've scaled it up to like, uh, I don't know, hundred million in revenues or something like that. And a lot of money, a lot of stuff going on. Are there any interesting engineering stories you can share with the listeners? Good question. Um, I think a lot of times the challenge was to get things kind of as bare and simple as can be. Like, uh, you know, speaking of rails versus Sinatra versus other things that sometimes you realize that the framework you're using, even if you wrote it yourself, can be doing lots of extra crap around what's actually necessary. Like say, for example, you visit a, a typical blog in 2015 um, or a news site that you just want to read an article. And that article is basically six paragraphs is how many bytes, <laughs> you know, like uh, 1,015 bytes. That's all you actually want is that. But in order to get that, you go to these sites that are you know, pulling in things from five different content distribution networks and all this JavaScript and all these ads and things sliding onto the screen. And they, the, the article is loaded dynamically with JavaScript. And you just think... Wow, like no wonder you need a whole data farm just to serve that all up. Well, as if you would have just had, just display the damn article, then you wouldn't have needed so many servers and so much IT to just give me that little six paragraphs I wanted. Um, so I think at CD Baby, we were constantly working with that, like trying to streamline things as much as possible because I think the whole site, even with all those users and everything, um, was really just, we had two servers. I had a, a little one U server that was the front end. Um, web server and then a 2U server that uh, next to it with a cross-connect Ethernet that was just the database. And that's it. I just had two dedicated servers that ran everything. And so when I hear people needing to fire up uh, 50 instances on AWS or whatever, I, I can't relate because um, my site was pretty popular and two servers could handle everything. So, did, um, did you just minimize the transactions that users were able to perform at the website or just minimized everything. Like you just kind of even just optimize your SQL calls and make sure that you're not putting any unnecessary stress on the server. You just uh, make the SQL calls like the minimum necessary information to grab from the server. Um, uh, you optimize those. You use the explain query to uh, to make sure that it's optimized. Um, front end, you just dish things up as soon as possible without relying on any unnecessary JavaScript and stuff like that. And Do you think that's, uh, is that still like a realistic approach today? Because you see movement towards like these real-time apps where you've got you know every every little transaction you have with your app with the application goes and communicates with the database and does something and then gives feedback to you and then it's like there's just all this interactivity like are is there still a place for these types of very narrow uh applications that do things in a simple fashion hmm well yeah i think you just you have to ask yourself what's 
really needed for you, right? Like even on, on my Sivers.org site, I mean, again, I'm not being prescriptive. I, I just, I don't care about other people. <laughs> I just, I just find out what works for me, right? And, it, and I try to share what I've learned so that if somebody finds that this also works for them, then, you know, good. Like same thing with that, uh, the PostgreSQL stuff we were talking about earlier. All I ever said on my website was, this is working really well for me. Like this way of doing things has been incredibly streamlined, incredibly successful. This works really well for me. And I, I feel sometimes with tech stuff, people get so religious and and cultish about the the things that they love that when you say something that uh i feel the conversation often goes like this i'll publicly say this is this is something i like and then the world replies with no you're wrong that's not what i like (laughs) like i i didn't say you should like it you know uh i'm just saying i like it so um if you look at my sivers.org website it may not be the prettiest thing, but uh, man, that thing is just, it is bare bones. Like if you do view source, I'm not even, I don't even have an external style sheet anymore. It's just like, I just found the bare minimum CSS that was necessary to style the page so you can read it. And I just inlined it right in the header. Um, just one less HTTP call that your browser needs to do when you read my site makes it load a little bit faster milliseconds, you know, whatever, but it just, it's fun to kind of look at anything you're doing and eliminate any crap around it even like say i just get really nerdy about this stuff like even urls it's funny to me when people have these long urls that are like fourhourworkweek.com slash 2015 slash 10 slash 31 slash uh you know things dash you dash must dash do dash two and and all these letters and i think you know hey listen you're talking to softwareengineeringdaily.com right (laughs) so i mean I don't know. The thing is, like, you know, it's 2015. A lot of domain names are taken. You can kind of, oh, you can, you can do the Warby Parker approach and have the like extremely long name, which is what I chose with Software Engineering Daily. Okay, to be fair, but I'm not talking like yeah, the domain name. Oh, you're, okay, obviously. you're not. Yeah, you're not talking about the domain. You're talking about no, the okay, right, the long it. URLs yes, that are okay. like you don't actually need. 193 characters <laughs> to uniquely refer to that article. You could have just called it, you know, uh, fourhourworker.com slash hash. Uh, yeah, well, or I was thinking even your unique ID, unless you have over one trillion articles that you've written, <laughs> you, you can refer to it in just four or six letters. That's true. Um, a combination of four or six letters can uniquely identify that document on your web server. You know, you don't need these long, silly, nested URLs that WordPress does by default. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just, I just, you'll, I just geek out about this stuff. So no, I'm no, always... No, it's, it's good, good it's discussion. It's fun. It's a yeah. hobby. I mean, this is, I just had to recently admit that, to me, programming is a hobby, not a profession. Because if I was really looking at it as just, like, a means to an end, then, yeah, the people who say that I should just hire another programmer to get done what I need done, I guess that's rational, Except this is just what I love doing. So um, I do this stuff just for my own enjoyment, and hopefully I'm making things that will be useful to other people. You know, but um. okay. Well, so I want to so I want to begin to close off. I want to talk some about a post that you made in 2000 or no, you I think it was 2010. You a post about loss where you recounted 2007 being a very difficult year, um. and and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners 
who are going through the loss of a job or job, loss of a relationship or something difficult. I mean, many people are going through difficult problems. Can you talk a bit about what happened in 2007 and what was so difficult and what you learned during that difficult time? Yeah, 2007 was like, yeah, worst year ever um, for me. I didn't, I, I ended up cutting these chapters out of my book, but there were going to be a couple chapters where I kind of vented about how bad things turned with CD Baby in the, the last year before I sold it. It got really, really awful, um, just the um, dynamic there at the site. So I think what I've learned is that, um, for one, I mean, just like time heals everything. I, I think that if you were to think back 10 years ago, so what it, was it now, 2015? Think back to you in 2005 <laughs> and what was really upsetting you at the time, right? And imagine that back in 2005, you would have written down all of the major, major problems you were facing at the time in 2005. And you were to go back now, 10 years later, and look at what you wrote down, you just kind of laugh and think it was kind of cute and quaint because you're like, yeah, of course, all of that stuff worked itself out. Um, and so... I like the fact that I'm 46 now and I've been alive a while long enough to see that yeah, things tend to just work themselves out. And I know at the time, when you're smack in the middle of it, sometimes it can just feel overwhelming. But you just got to kind of zoom out a bit and just realize, like, yeah, you know, this everything tends to work itself out. So you do what you can. Um, but more recently, I think what I've learned is this idea of... Um, doing what needs to be done um, no matter how you're feeling because I think a lot of us it's especially kind of a bit of a uh, millennial thing or a gen Y thing I don't know like this idea that um, hey man I'm just I, I want to do my passion I want to do what I love I want to I'm not in the mood to do this thing or that thing I, I just want to do what I feel like whereas I think maybe go back a couple generations there was this more of this coming out of the depression sense of just no you just do what needs to be done it doesn't matter how you're feeling um so i think there's something healthy in that that especially when you're feeling really down and just really bummed out or angry about a situation it can be tempting to just wallow in that you know but i think instead if you just go through the motions of what needs to be done um like you still need to do your dishes and pay your bills and even work-wise. Kind of like we said way back at the beginning of the conversation about like when you're not inspired and something feels overwhelming, but you just sit down and start typing anyway. Right. You know, it's like, no, uh, like, I obviously I don't feel like doing this right now and I'm literally screaming uh, at the idea of doing this because it's so frustrating, but I'm just going to sit down and keep typing and keep typing and I know that it'll work itself out. So I think, yeah, work-wise, it's like that sometimes. Like, say if you were just fired and and you know that what you need to do is to update your skills and you got to get up to speed with all the javascript stuff that's happening right now in 2015 it's like you may not want to you may think javascript is stupid and ugly and see look at that itty bitty books called the good parts see that's just proof that this language sucks it's like okay you can you can kick and scream but sit down and learn your javascript this is something you need to know now. So, so I take it you don't believe in writer's block. Well, it exists, but you just, you work your way through it. 
It is. I mean, writer's block is that kind of that. Well, resistance. so how do, how do you continue to be? Oh, the resistance, right? Okay. So, but how how do you continue to be creative? And when you're stressed out, like when you have something that is depressing you, how do you maintain creativity? I think same thing as I just said. Like you just you just start working, and inspiration comes. She'll only come to meet you halfway. Mm. You have to start without inspiration. You just have to just begin. You just start working on this thing. Go, you know, in my case, go create your database tables. Go start writing those functions. Sure. Maybe some people work from the UI backwards just to start creating this thing. Just add the, the barest, simplest functions to it. Make it start to work. Make a few unit tests. And then it's like, ah, okay, wait, hold on. All right, now that I got that unit test to pass. Okay, right. maybe I can have this. Oh, okay, here. And suddenly inspiration will come to meet you halfway. And man, I find that even if I'm depressed or angry, it you just start working and you keep working, and the the clouds blow over. You know? Um, what is the most counterintuitive thing that you've learned in life? Wow. Um, we might have to edit that. I don't know. Uh, there are so many, um, <laughs> but they've become. I think. I guess once I guess once they become a life lesson, they become intuitive. Right. Well, okay, exactly. I, I feel like you're not really learning something unless you're surprised, right? So the first time you hear something, especially if it's a fact and it's really surprising, well, then it's counterintuitive. Uh, it's like, whoa, that goes against what I thought was true. And those are the moments that you're learning something. Uh, but then it becomes your new reality, you know, um, and then it it just fits into your bigger picture reality. So I think I, I'm constantly seeking out those moments almost daily, trying mm-hmm. to pick up books on Amazon that uh, that go against what I know. And um, even yeah, this morning I woke up. I've been learning this Elm programming language uh, that's kind of like Haskell, but compiles growing into in popularity. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I've always wanted to learn Haskell just in theory. I hear people talking about the benefits of Haskell and just never really got around to it, maybe just because I couldn't find any practical use for it. It would have always just been some little geeky thing I knew just for fun, although that's what Ruby was when I first learned it. It was just like this fun little shell scripting language I learned for fun, and then later somebody wrote a web, web framework for it. But um, uh, yeah, I've always just wanted to learn Haskell, and I picked up a couple books on it, but just never really got into it. And then somebody described Elm as kind of like, Haskell purely for web development and I went ooh that's immediately useful that's so um yeah I've just been starting to learn that and like it but yeah it's 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 a very different way of doing things than I'm used to and it's to me very counterintuitive so yeah sorry I couldn't just pick out one no it's, a, it's totally the fine. most counterintuitive thing I think it's you just keep learning new ones every day um, uh, yeah. is there an engineer that you ad- admire the most Oh man, All those those open source guys that are out there contributing to everything and have created these great things that the world uses for free. Um, I mean, names that come to mind: the T.J. Holloway Chuck or something that yeah. made um, Express. And um, even yeah, one time before I learned JavaScript, I went to a conference and they uh, they put us up in housing, and I and I was rooming with this guy named Isaac that told me he wrote NPM and at the time since oh I didn't use, yeah since I didn't 
no JavaScript yet. I was like, oh, okay, what's NPM? And later I found out, it's like, oh my God, Isaac, that wrote, that, that was my roommate. Oh my God, that dude's amazing. And yeah, there are these people, uh, I can't even remember their names right now, but they're these people that you've seen that have contributed to, like, they co-wrote JPEG and they, they co-wrote, you know, all of these libs that exist in every Linux box in the world and they just did this in their spare time while they have a day job doing other things. And yeah, there are seriously times that I think that if I run out of uh, web app ideas and little entrepreneurial type ideas, I would be very happy just spending a couple decades just contributing to open source projects. I, I love those guys that do that so well. Well, that's great. Well, Derek Sivers, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been enlightening talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. And hey, I got to tell you one, one last thing before we go that uh, um, back when I was a musician, uh, when... When you just run into strangers, you know, on airplanes or whatever, and people say, so what do you do? I found that if I would say I'm a musician, then I'd get a whole bunch of stupid questions. Like, oh, what kind of music do you do? Are there any hits? Oh, no. Oh, hey, do you, do you play Freebird? You know. But so I tr- once I started learning a little bit of programming, I tried just as an experiment when people would say, what do you do? I'd say, I'm a programmer. And what I loved about saying that is it would shut up all conversation. They'd go, oh, oh. And they would have nothing to reply to that unless they were also a programmer. And ah. then it's like, oh, we could talk tech. And they'd say, oh, really? What do you program? And like now we're sitting there talking about programming, and I love it. So point is, I love talking to programmers. In fact, like it's like my eyes light up when I get an email in my inbox from another programmer, and we can sit and talk tech. So, yeah, that's the reason I wanted to come on your show is like the reason I do these things. I'm, obviously, I'm not here to promote anything. I wasn't pitching something. Uh, I mostly do it for the people I meet. So, yeah, if you made it all the way through this interview, uh, send me an email. It's Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at Sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S dot O-R-G. Yeah, just send me an email. Say hi. I love talking to fellow programmers. So, so ask me anything. I answer every email. Quick question. Did you, did you ever try programming music, like using a digital audio workstation or anything? No. Oh, I, man. I mean, well, it is fun. I, I love it. Oh, I can't, you know, I've seen these languages also that are like music making languages, these people basically using Haskell or Lisp to like compose music on the fly. And I I can't imagine what rabbit hole I would dive into if I got into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the digital audio workstations are cool just because it's like a really robust IDE. And uh, anyway, wow. it's getting off topic. But if you ever have a, you know, if you ever get an itch to scratch for music again, I, I really recommend diving into that. So, Oh, man. I'm almost scared of it. You know when, like, somebody <laughs> says, hey, you should check out Game of Thrones. I'm like, right. Eesh. Hey, you should man, check if, out Heroin. Right. <laughs> if, I, if I watch one of those things, man, you've just, like, made me waste 98 hours of my life. So I worry about, like, yeah, getting into, like, programming music. Right. Oh, man, you take two things I love and combine them. I'm, I'm kind of scared of that. Great. Okay. Well, uh, well, thanks for your time, Derek. I had a real cool. pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Talk to you soon.